Greetings, you're listening to podcast number 118 of Blast the Right. I'm your host, Jack Clark. Great to have you on board. Today, you'll hear why Ralph Nader's presidential candidacy is bad news on so many levels. Along the way, you'll also get a boatload of ammo to blast the right with. And, in addition to the MP3 of the podcast, I've sent you a phenomenal cartoon about Nader from my good friend, cartoonist Matt Bors. Let's get right into it. Sources you'll hear include Newsmax.com, The New York Times, John McCain's campaign website, Salon.com, MSNBC, CNN.com, the website of the Federal Election Commission, Google Books, and The Washington Post. Ralph Nader recently announced he's running yet again this year for president. I originally thought a segment on that would be a quick blast, maybe two or three minutes. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized I had to say, and the more important I realized the subject was. What you're about to hear, and this show will be on the longish side, so settle in for the ride, what you're about to hear has a wider applicability than just Ralph Nader, and a more durable shelf life than just this year's election. It applies to everyone thinking of third-party voting in 08, and beyond. To everyone who denigrates electoral politics this year and thereafter. To everyone who is contemptuous of strategic voting when worldwide life and death issues are at stake, now and in the future. Discussing the Nader candidacy also provides you and me the opportunity to review what eight years of right-wing rule has actually meant, not just in theory, but to flesh-and-blood humans, and hence to establish the stratosphere-high stakes in the 08 elections. Now, just so you know my own bona fides to be criticizing Nader supporters, my progressive activism goes back almost 40 years to organizing against the Vietnam War in high school. I've been consistently progressive since then. If you're a regular listener, you know I'm not a slightly left-of-center type, but a strong progressive, not least on the foreign policy issue of stopping first-world oppression and exploitation of the third world. In that arena, during the late 1980s, I organized civil disobediences against Ronald Reagan's efforts to overthrow the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. I don't remember the exact number of times I was arrested, probably around a half dozen. What I've learned in 40 years is that the most effective way to fight the right is to throw them out of power. In short, voting for Nader doesn't accomplish that and could produce the exact opposite result. So persuading Nader voters to vote Democratic may well be one of the most direct, effective ways to blast the right in the next eight months. And therefore, it's my duty not only to blast the right, but when circumstances call for it, as is unfortunately here the case, to blast as well the right's unwitting agents, the right's inadvertent enablers. You should understand clearly that Ralph Nader has said, I heard him tell Tom Hartman this, that he won't do what 2004 Green Party candidate David Cobb did. Cobb told his supporters in safe states to vote Green, but in swing states to vote Democratic for Kerry. No, Nader told Hartman he's running to win in all 50 states. For reasons that'll become obvious as we go along, Nader supporters really get me PO'd, and I have to restrain myself from addressing them let's face it, attacking them, as I would died-in-the-wool right-wingers. 
but I'm going to try to be respectful here to my wayward brother and sister progressives. So should you be. You probably know some Nader supporters. Hopefully you'll get some good talking points here to persuade those wayward souls to return to the progressive flock. Okay, one way to look at the Nader candidacy is mockingly as some benign historical curiosity. Quote, on NBC's Meet the Press on Sunday, when the 73-year-old announced his candidacy for the fourth time, Mr. Nader tossed himself into the historical oddities bin with Harold Stassen, nine tries for the Republican nomination, Eugene Debs, five attempts with the Socialist Party, and Lyndon LaRouche, several tries with several parties. But that's not how I look at it, and neither should you. No, it's much more serious, critically so. Here's how to look at it. If a runaway train is heading towards you, all you want first thing is it to be stopped. You don't care if the person stopping it is a great person. You don't care whether they'll reverse the train, if they understand how to prevent runaway trains, or if they'll improve our national rail system. First and foremost, right now, you just want the damn train stopped in its tracks. You and I are facing a runaway train, the right-wing project to transform this country into economic feudalism and soft fascism. Another eight years of right-wing control of the reins of government, and we may well be past the point of no return. So the mantra today is, stop the runaway train. Ignore Nader. Cast a vote that will serve to eject the right-wing from control of our government. Stopping the runaway train is job number one now, without which we may well be unable to do any other job. Now, you can see Nader supporters falling into two broad groupings. There are those who deny Nader cost Gore the presidency in 2000, but if that were the case, they would not have wanted to support Nader. Then, there are those more die-hard Nader supporters who say, even if Nader did course score the presidency in 2000, it was worth it. Democrats and Republicans are underneath it all the same. The Tweedledee and Tweedledum crowd. As Nader himself said on Good Morning America back then, whether Gore or Bush gets into the White House doesn't mean that much because the permanent corporate government in Washington is really determining policy. Was anyone ever more wrong? Let's get into some detail now. I'll address the Nader cost Gore the election deniers first. Ralph himself is certainly one of them. New York Times columnist Bob Herbert relates a recent conversation he had with Nader. When I asked if he understood the dismay he had caused among people who have admired him for many years, he said yes, but they were all factually wrong about him costing Mr. Gore the White House, and they've got to get over it. Wow. Nader supporters basically argue that Gore's poor campaigning was why he lost, or that Gore didn't take progressive enough positions, or that it was George Bush's steal in the election that cost Gore the presidency. It was all those things. It wasn't Ralph Nader's doing. This line of reasoning is basically illogical. You can have five contributing factors that all produce a result, and they're all necessary to produce it. If someone says factor three caused it, it makes no sense for you to say, no it didn't, factor two did. They both caused it. Sure, Gore had to make errors, Bush had to steal, but Nader had to have been in the ballot to make Florida so close that the theft could take place in the first place. You can talk until you're blue in the face saying, Gore should have done this and Gore shouldn't have done that. He'd have gotten more votes if he did this and he would have won if he had done that. That's conjecture. You can't be certain of it at all. 
and there's no way to quantify how many votes would be shifted with each suggested change in behavior by Gore. The only thing we can be sure of and that we can quantify is that the Nader spot on the Florida 2000 presidential ballot got 97,488 votes. Gore lost Florida by 537 votes. What we can be sure of is, but for Nader, Gore would have won. Nader supporters say those 97,000 people wouldn't have voted if Nader wasn't on the ballot, so Gore wouldn't have gotten those votes anyway. That's simply wrong. Here are the cold, hard numbers which you can give to your friendly local Nader supporter. There was a CNN USA Today Gallup poll just before the 2000 vote, and there were exit polls that day. All the polls had consistent results. These were national polls, and I see no reason not to apply them to the Florida vote. These surveys did find that some voters wouldn't have voted had Nader not been on the ballot, but only 20 to 30 percent of them would have stayed home. Gore would have gotten, depending on the poll, somewhere between 43 and 47 percent of those 97,000 some odd votes. Bush would have gotten less than half that, 21 percent. Frankly, I would have thought the split would have been more extreme. No matter. Even this two-to-one split means Gore would have picked up an extra 20 to 25,000 votes. So Florida wouldn't have had a mere thousand or a few hundred votes margin. It would have been well in excess of a 20,000 vote margin in Gore's favor. True, since around 6 million votes were cast, that 20,000 vote margin would have been close enough to still trigger a recount. But since the recount trend wound up adding votes to Gore, his victory margin would only have increased. I've heard some Nader supporters argue the Republicans would have just cheated that extra 20,000 votes. Really? If it was so easy for them to have added 20,000 votes to Bush, why didn't they do it right up front and avoid that initial razor-thin margin? No, I don't think it would have been so easy for them to have pulled 20,000 votes out of their electoral hat, or else they would have done so on Election Day. And of course, the Supreme Court wouldn't have been able to rescue George, since stopping the vote count would have frozen a Gore, not a Bush, victory. So it's clear beyond a shadow of a doubt that despite all of Gore's shortcomings, he still would have won Florida and the presidency had Nader not been on the ballot and set the stage for the Supreme Court intervention. I'll also add that the Nader 2000 candidacy had, and the Nader 2008 candidacy will have, further debilitating effects for the Democratic candidate. Democrats will have to waste time, energy, and emotional resources opposing Nader, instead of devoting that quantity of time, energy, and emotional resources to opposing the right-wing Republicans. And Nader suppresses the Democratic vote by trashing the Democrats, since many Democratic fence-sitters will just decide not to vote at all. Up next, you'll hear about the Nader diehards who don't even care if Nader co-scored the election in 2000 and could keep the right wing in power in 2008. Your one-minute voting report. Thanks, as always, for all your five-star reviews in iTunes. They've helped boost our circulation to over 4,000 subscribers. Please keep them coming in. Over at Podcast Alley, we're barely hanging in there at number nine in March. If you haven't voted yet this month, please do so. There's a one-click link to vote on my podcast homepage. And if you want to help even more, 
please go to podcastpickle.com and choose to put Blast the Right on your playlist. Thanks. Okay, so even if it cost the Democrats the election in 2000 and could again in 2008, there are Nader supporters who say it's worth the cost because Ralph raises important issues and puts pressure on the Democrats to be more progressive. First of all, are you as struck as I am by the illogic of this argument? What's the sense of pressuring people who have no power when your pressure will help ensure that they continue to have no power to do what you want them to do? And raising the issues? Excuse me, Dennis Kucinich raised virtually all of Nader's issues again and again in the Democratic primary debates. Any benefit of Nader raising these issues again in a debate or two, if he'll even be allowed in the debates, is far outweighed by the extraordinarily negative nightmare-level consequences of eight more right-wing years. More on that in a minute. In other words, is the incremental benefit of Ralph Nader raising the issue of, say, single-payer health insurance one more time worth the risk that not only won't you get single-payer, but you'll help keep in office those who won't countenance any expansion at all of the health care system to cover the insured. No, it's not. I think the Democrats are going to run on exactly what their polling and focus groups tell them will get the most votes and maximize their chances of securing the White House and the reins of power. And that's what I want them to do. Stopping the runaway train is job number one. Everything else comes after that. Winner-take-all general elections determine who takes power. They're not issues forums. Please be logical, my Nader-supporting friend. Who will it be easier to pressure the Oval Office, McCain or a Democratic president? Elect a Democrat and pressure him or her to the ends of the earth. I sure will. We'll join together and do so. But don't elect a Republican because Democrats right now won't do or say exactly what you want. The time to pressure Democrats isn't now. It's after you help elect them. And then if you pressure them, A, they'll have the power to do what you're pressuring them to do, and B, because you helped elect them, they'll be more likely to listen to you. If you pressure them now, like Nader, you're ensuring you'll never get what you want because you'll ensure they won't get into power and can't enact what you want. This whole Naderite strategy is self-sabotage. Nader playing the role of an unwitting GOP agent in fact, doing the bidding of the right wing, ensuring no progressive measures are ever enacted, and that the right wing will march on their merry way. You know what gets me the most furious at Nader supporters who say they don't care if their actions wind up electing a right winger? It's their cavalier attitude towards the suffering of others. Unfortunately, Ralph evinces this outlook. Listen to him with Tim Russert. How would you feel, however, if Ralph Nader's presence on the ballot tilted Florida or Ohio to John McCain and McCain became president and Barack Obama, the first African-American who had been nominated by the Democratic Party, this is hypothetical, did not become a president and people turned to you and said, Nader, you've done it again. Not a chance. If the Democrats can't landslide the Republicans this year, they ought to just wrap up, close down. Uh, emerge in a different form. What a non sequitur. What does this even mean? If they can't win, they didn't deserve to win, and even if I helped them lose, they should have lost anyway? 
It's this cavalier attitude to the Republican right-wing continuing in power that drives me insane. I submit to you that only a comfortable, upper-middle-class or wealthier person could afford such a cavalier attitude. They know they won't be the ones suffering from continued right-wing rule. Think. How many unions representing workers are going to endorse Nader? Consider how many social and economic justice organizations advocating on behalf of the poor and homeless will be advocating a protest vote for Nader. Being cavalier with other people's economic security isn't a progressive way to be, it's a right-wing way to be. Back in 2000, Nader's financial disclosure forms revealed he was worth at least $3.8 million. He's a multimillionaire. He won't personally suffer. What does he apparently care if the poor, working, and middle class in America continue to do far worse under a right-wing administration than they would under even an all-too-imperfect democratic one? Under Bush, we have the greatest income inequality since the Great Depression. Poverty is up. More people lack health insurance than ever before. Beyond economics, what about the additional mass murder a continuing right-wing rampage abroad will be able to perpetrate? Apparently, most Nader supporters have never had 2,000-pound bombs dropped on their head. But I'm concerned, as I'm sure you are as well, for those in other countries who will suffer such consequences if McCain gets into office. That old, uh, that old Beach Boy song, Bomberan. <laughs> bom, 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 bom. <laughs> Not to mention the continuing carnage in Iraq. Tell me, Mr. or Ms. Nader supporter, do look me in the eye and tell me you truly believe Al Gore would have invaded Iraq. But oh, John McCain taking power won't matter? President Bush has talked about our saving in Iraq for 50 years. Maybe 100. Is that, is that hard? We've been, in, we've been in South Korea, we've been in Japan for 60 years, we've been in South Korea for... 50 years or so, that'd be fine with me, so as, long as, Americans, as long as Americans are not being injured or harmed or wounded or killed. It's fine with me. The point is, it's American casualties. we got to get Americans off the front line, have the Iraqis, as part of the strategy, take over more and more of the responsibilities, and then I don't think Americans are concerned if we're there for a hundred years or a thousand years or ten thousand years. What they care about is the sacrifice of our most precious treasure, and that's American blood. Being cavalier with other people's lives isn't a progressive way to be. It's a right-wing way to be. Moving along here, I bet many Nader supporters don't really understand the importance of the Supreme Court or what McCain's plans are for it. The next president will probably appoint one or two, maybe even three justices. He'll probably pick relatively young jurists. McCain has explicitly said, he has it on his website, that he'd appoint justices like Alito and Roberts. Under McCain, the court could tilt hard right for 40 or more years. The next 40 years! Three more Alitos and Roberts compared to, say, three more Ruth Bader Ginsburgs. Isn't that a huge, humongous difference? Aren't you crazy, Ralph, to risk that? The Democrats deserve to lose if they can't win even with me in the race. Please. Remember what Ted Kennedy said after Reagan nominated right-wing fanatic Robert Bork to the Supreme Court in 1987? Quote, 
Robert Bork's America is a land in which women would be forced into back-alley abortions, blacks would sit at segregated lunch counters, rogue police could break down citizens' doors in midnight raids, school children could not be taught about evolution, writers and artists could be censored at the whim of the government, and the doors of the federal courts would be shut on the fingers of millions of citizens. Close quote. McCain has, right on his website, he wants Roe v. Wade overturned. And it's even worse now than what Ted Kennedy said, if you can believe it. Check this out. We know the right-wing strategy is to destroy the social and regulatory safety net that largely began under FDR. Roosevelt is dead. His policies may live on, but we're in the process of doing something about that as well. The right-wing strategy so far has been a program-by-program program starve the beast, shrink government down to the size where, as Grover Norquist put it, you can drown it in the bathtub strategy. This is the retail approach. One social or regulatory safety net program at a time. Under a Supreme Court dominated by right-wingers, there could be wholesale, all-at-once destruction. I first discussed this back in podcast number four. Wow, two and a half years ago. As I related to you back then, here's Adam Cohn writing in the New York Times, quote, in the early 1900s, the court routinely struck down worker protections, including minimum wage and maximum hours laws and congressional laws against child labor. That period, known as the Lochner era, after a 1905 ruling that a New York maximum hours law violated the employer's due process rights, is considered one of the court's darkest. We're not in a new Lochner era, but traces of one are emerging. This court is already the most pro-business one in years, and one or two more conservative appointments could take it to a new level. Janice Rogers Brown, a federal appeals court judge who's often mentioned as a future Supreme Court nominee, has expressly called for a return to the Lochner era. Close quote. McCain gets a couple of appointments. The government beast could be in total summarily executed and buried. The right-wing Supreme Court could broadly rule that the federal government doesn't have the constitutional power to enact social and regulatory safety nets. How ironic is it that the very regulatory agencies that Nader was so instrumental in creating, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, the Environmental Protection Agency, and the Consumer Product Safety Commission, Bush has gone on to quote, gut, hobbler, hamstring. And how much more ironic it would be if a Supreme Court packed with additional far-right judges as a result of Nader helping elect a right-winger again in 2008, across the board declares such agencies unconstitutional. Stop the runaway train, if for nothing else than the Supreme Court. Up next, the critical difference for the third world poor between right-wing and democratic administrations. We're there to to eliminate the weapons of mass destruction in that country. We know that Saddam Hussein produced and possessed chemical and biological weapons and has used chemical weapons. We know that. We now have teams of investigators who are hard at work to uncover the truth, to kind of catapult the propaganda. In my line of work, you got to keep repeating things over and over and over again to kind of catapult the propaganda. Um, it turned out that we have not found any stockpiles. I think it's unlikely that we will find any stockpiles. I don't know anybody in any government 
or any intelligence agency who suggested that the Iraqis had uh, nuclear weapons. That's, that's fact number one. What has not stood the test of time was the judgment we made that there were stockpiles of chemical and biological weapons. Please now circle back with me for a minute to U.S. foreign policy. What I always say is, both the mainstream Democrats and the Republicans do want to continue U.S. and Western domination and exploitation of the third world. The difference is, and it's a big difference if you're on the receiving end, which I doubt any Naderites are, the big difference is the Democrats have their boot heel on the windpipe of the third world poor pressed down a little less forcefully. What's that mean? Quite a bit. It means that sometimes the third world poor can grab a breath and push the boot heel off their throat. It's the right wing who will always make sure the boot heel gets placed back even more forcefully. If you're a solidarity activist, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? It's Nixon who overthrows Allende in Chile and installs dictator Pinochet. The boot heel is returned. It's under Carter, on the other hand, that the Sandinistas successfully overthrow dictator Somoza and the FMLN is poised to win a military victory in its revolution in El Salvador. The boot heel is not pressing down as forcefully. But then Reagan comes into office, rescues the right-wing El Salvador government, and creates the contra-terrorist army which eventually leads to Sandinista electoral defeat in 1990. The right-wing returns the boot heel, crushing the windpipe of the third world poor. More recently, again, it's under Clinton that Chavez is elected in Venezuela. The boot heel is not pressing down as forcefully. And again, do you think Bush would have allowed that election to take place? Or that if Bush weren't mired down in Iraq, he wouldn't have done a heck of a lot more and probably have succeeded in getting rid of Chavez? And in another eight years of right-wing rule, that such will be accomplished? The boot heel will again stomp down more forcefully than ever and crush the windpipe of the Venezuelan people. It matters for third world liberation movements who's in the White House. What about torture? Prior administrations have supported torture abroad, but only the Bush administration brags that it's official policy and tries to get it officially sanctioned. Ralph's cojones aren't in the vice. What does he care? Put your cojones in the vice, and you'll be singing a different tune, Mr. Nader Defender. Being cavalier with other people's lives isn't a progressive way to be. It's a right-wing way to be. More life and death at home. I guess Nader supporters aren't any of the 18,000 Americans who, according to the National Institutes of Health, die every year for lack of health care coverage, meaning being diagnosed too late or not receiving adequate treatment. Beyond life and death, Countless others are affected by the difference between Republicans and Democrats, even if not on a life-and-death level. There are a myriad of non-life-and-death but still critically important issues at stake. For example, I bet no die-hard NATO supporter has ever been a mistreated worker prevented from forming a union by a right-wing union-busting law firm working in collusion with right-wing appointees on the National Labor Relations Board who consistently rule in the employer's favor. I imagine no die-hard NATO supporter is one of the physically disabled who have had a hard time getting the benefits they're entitled to from hostile right-wing appointed Social Security Disability Administrators. I guess they're not parents of kids exposed to lead in toys from China that a right-wing eviscerated Consumer Product Safety Commission failed to stop 
or whose after-school programs were ended to pay for tax cuts for the wealthy. And on and on it could go. You know, I gotta tell you, the single most annoying phrase I hear from Naderites is vote your conscience. Okay, maybe your conscience should dictate that you not throw away your vote and thereby enable more right-wing mass murder. Maybe vote your conscience shouldn't mean vote with blinders on, hands over your ears, you not caring what tragedies ensue if right-wing rule continues unabated. My dear Nader supporter, you have to understand, by voting for someone, you're not pledging your life to the candidate. You're not making them your soulmate, endorsing everything they've ever done in the past, are doing now, and will do in the future. Come on! It just means you're saying you'd rather have this person in office rather than the other one who's even worse. You're making a tactical decision that the prime goal in November 08 is to stop the right wing with whomever. You don't want people to suffer and die just because you can't get your preferred candidate into office right now. You understand that to cast a protest vote, you would increase human misery, suffering, pain, and death and that's something you want to at all costs avoid. And remember, to repeat what I said up front, this analysis also applies to any other third-party voting. As my friend, the political cartoonist Matt Bors put it, by the way, you should be able to see his phenomenal strip about Nader accompanying this podcast. If not, check it out at his site, mattbors.com. As Matt put it, we're on the precipice, on the edge, the point of no return. A 40-year far, far, far-right Supreme Court. The American people, like the proverbial frog being slowly heated in water, getting used to their civil liberties impinged and perpetual war waged. How much human misery, suffering, pain, and death is it worth to make a point, to punish Democrats because they're not all you want them to be? In my eyes, Nader's prime 2000 legacy is Iraq. Nader has the blood of hundreds of thousands of Iraqis on his head. Al Gore would not have invaded Iraq. Period. I've told friends that in my calculation, the entire sum total of the good Ralph Nader has done in his life is outweighed by the human misery, suffering, pain, and death inflicted domestically and around the world by the right wing under the Bush-Cheney administration. All of that human misery, suffering, pain, and death being on Ralph Nader's head. Now, I am hopeful that Nader will fail miserably in his latest campaign. Because while in 2000 Nader got 2.7% of the national vote, in 2004 he only got about one-tenth of that. He lost almost 90% of his voters from 2000 to 2004. Probably because that 90% realized what a vote for Nader had wrought. Four years of George W. Bush. They didn't want to risk that again. In 2008, may Nader's vote drop another 90% or more. Because how diehard, deaf, dumb, and blind, and sensitive to the suffering of others do you have to be to risk eight more years of right-wing rule after what you've just seen in the second term of the Bush-Cheney regime? The right-wing GOP are no dummies. How much you want to bet they're funneling money to Nader? They want him to run. They know what his effect will be. They want him to siphon votes from Democrats. They're all too glad to help him elect right-wingers. That's what they did in 2000. As the Washington Post reported back then, quote, 
hoping to boost Ralph Nader in states where he is threatening to hurt Al Gore, a Republican group is launching TV ads featuring Nader attacking the vice president. Close quote. Please, my dear Nader-supporting friend, don't be more interested in punishing the Democrats for their admitted failures than in stopping the right wing from doing further right-wing unique and soon perhaps irreversible damage. At stake is our very system of checks and balances, our civil liberties, the makeup of the Supreme Court, our health, our safety, war and peace, life and death. To close, let me say that I've never been any good at predicting which way the American public will vote. Maybe the Democratic candidate will win by such a landslide that Nader will be totally irrelevant. Maybe in hindsight I'll realize I shouldn't have devoted an entire podcast, a long one at that, to Nader's candidacy. But today as I sit here speaking to you, I just can't shake the nagging fear that the election will be a lot closer than people are expecting, and that Nader votes could spell the difference between victory over or defeat by the right wing. Remember Florida's 537 vote margin? Better safe than sorry, and hence this podcast. Next show, be assured, we'll be back to more directly blasting the right, hopefully with a bunch of now ex-Nader supporters firmly back with us in the mainstream progressive fold. Well, that'll about wrap it up for today. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend about Blast the Right and vote for Blast the Right at Podcast Alley. There's a one-click link to do each of those on my podcast homepage. You get to the podcast homepage by typing in Blast the Right in Google, and I'm the first result. You can also go to iTunes and give Blast the Right a five-star review. A special shout-out to all you Live 365 and Red Dragon 365 listeners. Great to have you on board. Please consider coming over to the podcast homepage, subscribing for free, and you can download and listen to any episode of the podcast anytime you want. Thanks for help with this week's show to Neats, Kit from Rocky Mount, North Carolina, and Scott from youraverageidiot.blogspot.com. Scott would like right-wingers to go to his site and argue with him. Music credits. The break music was Catapult to Propaganda by Nye's Music. L.A. Nightmare by 22 Caliber, and Not the One Blues by Burnsheet Thornside. We'll close with a little bit of We Can't Make It Here by James McMurtry. Links to all the music I play on Blast the Right can be found on my music resources page. Links to all the statistics and quotations I use can be found on my data resources page. Both of them are linked to off the main podcast homepage. Please keep all that great email coming in. My address is rational at roadrunner.com. You can also call in and leave a comment for me to play on Blast the Right. Dial 310-933-5891 and leave your message. You can also leave a message on Skype. My Skype name is Jack from Blast the Right. So, until next time, I'll sign off and say I love you all, including all you right-wing misguided souls. We'll work for food, we'll die for oil, we'll kill for power, and to us the spoils, the billionaires get to pay. Tax. The working poor get to fall through the cracks So let them eat jelly beans, let them eat cake Let them eat sh- whatever it takes They can join the Air Force or join the Corps If they can't make it here anymore
wants to admit it or not You can read it in the paper, read it on the wall Hear it on the wind if you're listening at all Get out of that limo and look us in the eye Call us on a cell phone, tell us all why